Well, please turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew 19 this morning. You can find this on page 774 in the Pew Bibles. Matthew 19. This morning we're going to be looking at one of the parables of Jesus. A parable is a, it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Uh, it, it, it reveals spiritual truth to us in ways that are meant to, to help us to understand. And so this parable, uh, Jesus, Jesus tells it to his followers in a way that is meant to illustrate something. Jesus didn't just tell this parable for entertainment value. In other words, this is, this is meant to communicate his truth to us and to shape the way we live. It's, it's meant to help us to understand something. It's meant to confront certain attitudes and ways of thinking that are wrong and false. As we'll see this morning, this parable speaks to us in the midst of, of our difficulties when that other guy who just joined the company recently got the promotion instead of you, who've worked so long and so hard. This parable speaks to us when that other couple gets pregnant and, and you and your spouse don't. It speaks to us whenever that other person is healthy and strong and you are struck with illness. As we'll see, this, this parable speaks to us this morning. And so let's read, uh, starting in Matthew 19 in verse 30. I know that that's just the last verse of the chapter, but uh, just, just so you know, this, the chapter and verse numbers were not inspired by God. Those were, those were put in the Bible later just in order to help us find our place better. It's just for reference. And, uh, you know, they did their best to break up the, the verse and chapter sections as best they could, but, but sometimes there's a flow of thought that, that goes through, through chapters and the, the break is more artificial. And that's the case here this morning. So that's why we're starting in Matthew 19, but we're going to read down into chapter 20. And so read with me, if you will. And I'm going to ask, if you're able, uh, please stand for the reading of God's holy word this morning. Matthew 19, starting in verse 30. Jesus said to his disciples, But many who are first will be last, and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, 
Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal with us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I choose to give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So, the last will be first, and the first last. You may be seated. Well, as we consider this parable, the key to rightly understanding its meaning, its message, will be to understand it in its context. We must ask, why did Jesus choose to tell this story here in this, in this context? What was it that he was trying to illustrate? What was it that he was trying to explain or to correct? And we have the context. We have Jesus' previous conversation with his disciples that led to him telling this story. And we see that this parable is bookended by a saying, by a principle of the first being last and the last first. That's found in verse 30 of chapter 19, and then it's repeated again right at the end of the story, right where you'd expect, you know, here's the moral of the story. There in chapter 20 in verse 16. So this parable is meant to explain and clarify and illustrate this principle of the first being last and the last first. And it's meant to also illustrate what the kingdom of heaven is like. So Jesus is, is trying to explain to his followers, here's how it is. But why did Jesus see the need to say this principle in the first place? Why did he say, why now at this point in his discussion would he tell his disciples, but many who are last will be first and the first last? Let's, let's backtrack a little further back into chapter 19. And if you recall last week, we considered the tragic case of the rich young man who walked away from Jesus, who chose treasure on earth, his possessions, instead of treasure in heaven, who faced with the choice between losing his earthly wealth and following Jesus or keeping his wealth and not having Jesus. He chose his money. He chose his house. He chose his things. He didn't trust Jesus enough to make him everything. And after that, Jesus warned about the danger of riches and made the point that salvation is only possible with God. It's impossible with man. Not only for the rich, but for all of us. But the disciples, you know, after Jesus had made that point there towards the end of chapter 19, their minds turned back to those treasures 
that Jesus had promised the rich young man, you know, follow me and you'll have treasure in heaven. And Peter, speaking up for the disciples, he says in, in verse 27, he says, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus answered and he, he replied that they would not be worse off in the end. They would not be losers for having given up whatever they'd given up in order to follow him. Far from it. In fact, what, what they'd given up would be more than made up for in, in following him. In the kingdom, they would have even a hundredfold. They would be richly rewarded. What then will we have? But Jesus, he didn't stop there. He didn't stop with merely saying that they would, be, they would be much better off in the end. There was something more that needed to be said. Something more. He couldn't just end the conversation there. And so in verse 30, he says, but, but, and then he gives his principle. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. So Jesus, he's intending to correct some kind of misconception that may have started to form in their minds as they started thinking about all that they would have for following Christ. Let's consider this morning the story itself, and then we'll consider its lesson, and then thirdly, we'll think about what it means for us. So those will be kind of our our three movements this morning. We're going to take a closer look at this story, then we're going to consider its main lesson, and then we'll apply it to ourselves. What does it mean for us this morning? So first of all, let's look at the story itself. Well, the shadows of night were just beginning to retreat before the rising sun, But the master of the house, he was already awake and dressed, and he was headed into town, headed to the marketplace. It was there that the day laborers would be gathered, ready to be hired for the day, hoping to be hired to work the harvests on the larger plantations. The master of the house, we're told in verse 2, he he got to the marketplace, he, he agreed with some laborers for a denarius a day and sent them into his vineyard. It was a fair price, a common wage for a day's work. As the morning sun boldly ascended, the vineyard began to move with activity as the laborers moved about among the the long rows of grapevines, heavily laden with clusters of juicy grapes. A good start to a good day. But three hours later, nine o'clock in the morning, The master of the house goes out again. He goes out again. And verse 3 tells us that he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, presumably waiting to be hired. And approaching the workers, he directed them to his vineyard as well. And he, he didn't, notice he didn't haggle with these over how much he'd pay them. He simply gave them the assurance that whatever was right, he would give them. The men, either particularly desperate or simply trusting their new employer, they went off to his vineyard without further delay. The day was still young and there was much to do. The master of the house, we're told, 
went out about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, so noon and 3 p.m., and did the same, collecting more and more laborers to work his vineyard. The midday sun oppressed the vineyard with its heat, but the workers were working and reinforcements were coming in waves. At the 11th hour, the days at this time, they, were, they divided the workday up into 12 hours, uh, roughly from sunrise to sunset. At the 11th hour, about 5 p.m., give or take our time, the master of the house went out again. In verse 6, it says that he found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. Here were the men passed over by the other employers, the last round draft picks, the ones that no one else seemed to have room for. As these men had waited, they'd, they hadn't been idle all day by choice. Each coming employer had caused their hopes to rise. You know, maybe this one will have work for me. But then their hopes would be dashed once again as they were passed by and others were hired instead. As, as they answered the, the master of the house, no one has hired us. That's why we're standing here, because no one has hired us. At this time, day laborers had no real social safety net to catch them if they went unemployed. You know, there wasn't like welfare or social security in the same way that we have it today. They, were, they would have faced a lot more uncertainty here in, in ancient Judea. One uh, Bible scholar, R.T. France, notes that the, the day laborer did not even have the minimal security that a slave had in belonging to one master. In, in such a setting, no work meant no food for the family. So, you know, they would go out and work the harvest, but as soon as that job was done, they were back to unemployed until they found the next job. That was, that was kind of the condition of, of these day laborers. And so, when they went without work, and because they were generally paid by the day at this time, um, not, not getting work one day meant not getting paid, and hence, you might not be able to buy groceries that day. Might not be food on the table. The sun was descending into the west, and each minute brought home the crushing reality of not having work, of not knowing where employment would come from, of, of not knowing how they would provide for their families. But surprisingly, as this this stranger walks up, this master of the house, with only one hour left in the workday, he hires them, and he sends them off to his vineyard as well. The sun was beginning to set. The shadows were growing long as this last band of laborers entered the vineyard, and they must have gotten some confused looks as they, with their clean hands and faces, joined in with the, the dirtied sweat-drenched workers who'd borne the burden of the heat of the day. And perhaps this last group had just found their place, just gotten oriented, and just begun to work when it was quitting time. The foreman came and called the workers to get paid. But interestingly, we see that he called this last group first. 
following his master's instructions. Now you can imagine as they walked up to the, the table to get paid, you can imagine their speechless elation as they were each handed a full day's work. And once they got over the shock, they probably stuttered out their thankfulness, their surprised gratitude to the master of the house. But in the back of the line, those first workers that had been hired first, they, they saw the commotion towards the front of the line. They, they grew excited as they saw that those guys who just worked an hour, they got a full day's wage. And they began to think, well, what might we have? We've worked 12 times as long as they did. You could imagine them standing at the back of the line as the others are getting paid, you know, rubbing their hands together, whispering excitedly to each other. Man, we're going to get about half a month's worth of, worth of pay off of this one day of work. But their excitement quickly melted away when they received each man their usual day's wage of one denarius. Verse 11 says, And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. These guys, they barely broke a sweat. You're paying them as much as us? Now, we may relate to these, these first workers. We can understand their complaints. I mean, how often have... How often have you been, perhaps, uh, seen others treated in a way that you're like, well, they don't deserve that. I deserve that. <laughs> These Johnny-come-lately workers showed up just before quitting time, and they receive as much as we do, who worked a solid 12 hours in the heat of the day. It didn't seem fair. In fact, it wasn't fair, was it? Well, finally, the master speaks. Verse 13 says, but he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. I am doing you no wrong. You see, their grumbling was due to what they saw as an injustice. That's not fair. And the master speaks directly to that. Right off the bat, he says, Listen, I'm doing you no wrong. No injustice has been committed here. I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for one denarius a day? I'm just holding up my end of the bargain. Of course, they couldn't deny it. They, they would have no case in a court of law. That's what they'd signed up for. They couldn't really claim that they'd been cheated. The landowner, the, the master of the house, he, he defends his contractual integrity. He'd paid them exactly what he agreed to pay them. And then he defends his own property rights. Verse 14 says, he says to them, take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? It's a good point. It's a good point. Why are they getting mad about what somebody else does with his own money? And lastly, the master switches from defense to offense on the complaining laborers. Verse 15, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Do you begrudge my generosity? A more precisely literal way of rendering that um, is captured by the King James Version. It says, 
is thine eye evil because I am good? Having an evil eye, as one commentator put it, that's, that would, be, would have been a biblical image for stinginess and jealousy. Having an evil eye means to be stingy or, or, jelly or en- jealous, jealous or envious. Their standards of fairness, these, these first workers, their standards of fairness didn't leave much room for undeserved acts of generosity, especially when it put those who were less deserving on the same level with them. Even if, if technically they hadn't been done any wrong, they hadn't been cheated, they just didn't like the fact that others were being shown such generosity more so than they were shown. They didn't like that. They were too stingy and begrudging and envious to appreciate the master's kind generosity to the last workers. If generosity meant that others would be, in their words, made equal to us, they didn't like that. Since they'd judged those others as not being deserving of such treatment. They couldn't appreciate the beauty of grace, the beauty of generosity. The master, he exposes their prideful sense of entitlement. They'd forgotten their place, and they'd gotten mad about what another man had done with his money, and all because they thought that they ought to be, that he ought to treat others as, as they would treat them. Meaning that, you know, they, they thought, this man is treating those people better than we would treat them. That's not right. He should do what we would do. In their spirit of entitlement, they felt that if the master was going to be that good and that generous to those guys, well, then he better pay up. You know, he owes us 12 times as much. He has to be proportionately as generous to us. And if he doesn't, then he actually owes us, and he's done us an injustice. But they were wrong. As Leon Morris put it so well, the fact that he chose to be generous to other people gave these men no new rights. Their discontent was due to envy, not to the overlooking of any of their rights. So, the last will be first, and the first last, as verse 16 says. And so this brings us, secondly, to the the lesson that this story teaches. What is this story teaching us? It teaches us this. If you want kind of the, the main lesson, uh, it's, it's this, that we should not think that God owes us in proportion to how much we've served him in comparison to others. God doesn't owe us in proportion to how much we've served him given for him, suffered for him, in comparison to others. Picture this. The criminal dying on the cross next to Jesus. He lived a life of crime, so much so that he'd earned an appointment with the most horrific and shameful form of execution that the cruel Romans could invent. And even there, as he hangs in agony in the most cruel and inhumane torture, he admits, speaking to his fellow criminal, we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. He's, he's being real there in Luke 23. He's, he's admitting, as bad as this crucifixion is, we deserve it. They must have been 
pretty bad criminals. But this, this low life, this career criminal, this one who had made the streets dangerous at night, makes a final plea to the man on the middle cross. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And this unnamed man of the world, a man of violence and deceit, a man who had made the streets dangerous at night, who had no time to make up for all the bad he'd done, to make up for his career of hurting others and scamming and cheating and robbing and murdering. Only time for a, a prayer of mercy. This man, this last place Christian in the 11th hour of his life, goes straight up to paradise with God. Forgiven. His record whiter than snow. Though his ledger had once been stained with too much red for him ever to have scrubbed clean. He was washed by the soul-cleansing blood of the very man from whom he'd asked that final favor. He's justified before a holy God. He got the righteousness of Christ put to his account. He's in on the merits of Jesus. And there he is with Moses and Abraham and Daniel and all the heroes of the faith. There he will be in glory with Peter and Paul, with the martyrs like like Polycarp, who had many years after his conversion served Christ and who died for his faith, with, with Perpetua, who bravely faced death in the arena, not for her sins, not for her crimes, but out of faithfulness to her Savior. What had this man done? Judging strictly by human standards of fairness, this guy shouldn't be anywhere near those men and women who had endured so much. He should be relegated, like if heaven had a slum, that's where this guy ought to be. He ought to be on the, on the outer circle, at the, at the farthest end of the table at the marriage supper of the Lamb, farthest away from Jesus. In fact, maybe he doesn't even have a place there. Maybe he should just be, be kind of bringing the food in to serve the others, to serve the, the great heroes of the faith. So we would tend to think. The seats closest to Jesus, surely those should be reserved for Moses and Abraham and Paul and Peter. But maybe we shouldn't be so quick to assume such things. See, God doesn't operate with us like we would think. That's why Jesus says, many who are first will be last and the last first. It will, there, there will be much that surprises us, much that is unexpected based on what we tend to think of as, as fair. God is a gracious God. Simply because one was so much more unworthy of God's grace, that doesn't mean that they shall have so much less of it. Grace, after all, is, what is it? It's unmerited favor. We, none of us, deserve it to begin with. Now, I don't know exactly the order of events and the way in which the Lord will reward us in the paradise of God. But considering this parable, don't you think it, it would be just like Jesus to welcome this thief from the cross first, even before he he welcomes Moses and, and Abraham. 
Wouldn't this just highlight and, and further demonstrate that all of us are saved by his grace? All of us were unworthy, and that he owed us nothing, but gave us everything as a free and generous gift. See, God, he doesn't owe us in proportion to how much we've served him, given for him, suffered for him, in comparison to others. In fact, God doesn't owe us, period. Full stop. He does not owe us. We owe him, owe him our very breath. We owe him our perfect and absolute obedience as the creatures that he has made. According to the scriptures, he made us for himself. And we, we've lived as though we exist for ourselves so much of the time. Because of our sin, we owe him the just penalty of offending him. Our God, who is infinitely worthy of praise and honor. God doesn't owe us, but he freely and generously gives to the undeserving. We owe him an infinite debt and an eternity in hell, and instead he gives us infinite blessing. All of those who, who believe and simply trust in him, like the thief on the cross, calling out for mercy. He gives us this at the cost of his own blood. For God so loved us when we had so despised and rejected him in favor of our own selfish agendas. God so loved us that he sent his son. And the son, the eternal son of God, the creator of the universe, entered the universe he had created and took on human flesh and came, as Jesus will say a little later in chapter 20, not to be served, but to serve, to give his very life as a ransom for many. Friends, he did this. He did this so that anyone who turns to God in humility, like that criminal on the cross, recognizing his kingship, pleading for mercy, will be saved. Have you come to Jesus? Have you come like that last place Christian, like that criminal on the cross? Have you come to Jesus pleading for mercy? There is no other way. There is no more exalted pathway to heaven for more respectable people. We must all come to him leaving behind all excuses, leaving behind all of our supposed good deeds that would commend us to God. Say, God, I, you know, I ought to get in because I've done this or I've not done that. We've got to leave all of that behind. We've got to come to him saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And God will save us. Do you trust that promise? Do you trust him enough to stop making those excuses and simply trusting yourself to the sheer mercy of God? Like that thief on the cross, making no more excuses you know, it's hard to know who to trust these days. But you can trust the words of the one who is risen from the dead. You can trust him. The one who didn't just survive death. The one who overcame death by his own death and ever lives to make intercession for his people. He says, what does he promise us? He says, come unto me and I will give you rest. He says, come unto me and you will in no wise be cast out. Believe and be saved. Believe not and you are condemned already, Jesus says in John 3.18. He doesn't say believe and 
be a better person and maybe at the end of your life, if you've stacked up enough merit, then maybe I'll let you in. No, it's, we're saved not, not by works, lest any man should boast. By grace you have been saved. By undeserved favor, the sheer kindness of God to the most undeserving. That's how any of us are saved. Believe not and you are condemned already. So do you trust? Do you trust in the blood of Jesus and the righteous life of Jesus? Do you believe that that's enough for you? Will you turn from serving yourself and following your own heart and entrust your happiness to Jesus that, who has given himself for you? Will you give him yourself? You know, what a trade that is. Your debt for his riches. Your sin for his righteousness. Your death for his death and the life he gives you through it. That's grace. God doesn't owe us, period, full stop. But he gives freely and generously to the undeserving. And so, of course, if God doesn't owe us anything to begin with, then he certainly doesn't owe us more in proportion to what he's given someone else. We can't start to say, well, God, I know you don't owe me anything. I know I deserve to be in hell, but you've given me eternal life and blessing. But... Look at what you've given this other person. You owe me something now. We can't, we can't start to make those comparisons. I, I believe this is why Jesus tells this parable at this, at this time and in this place. The disciples, what did they ask? What then will we have? When you think about, you know, I'm destined for greatness, for glory, for, you know, as Jesus told them, to, to reign with him and, and judging the 12 tribes of Israel seated with him on thrones, that can easily lead to a sense of superiority and entitlement of, well, I'm better than the next guy. But when, and then when things start to go hard for us and maybe that next guy, things seem to be going better for him, we can, that, that sense of entitlement breeds discontent. Jesus reminds us, listen, I choose to do what I will with what belongs to me. Do you begrudge my generosity? Because I'm kind and generous, would you despise that? I've done you no wrong. I've done you no wrong. Friends, far from it. We've done him all the wrong. He's only been good to us. Well, we've considered the story, we've considered its lesson, and this brings us to our final point this morning, its application. Let's, let's think a little more closely about what does this mean for us? Its main application is that, is that since God has been so generous to us, we ought to, A, be thankful for whatever he gives us, whatever reward he, he bestows upon us, and B, rejoice in his generosity to others. Rejoice in his generosity to others. We have to be thankful for whatever he gives. This parable reminds us of the grace by which we stand, and it warns us against growing entitled and, and grumbling and complaining when we don't get what we foolishly think God owes us. I would ask you, brother, sister, are you one who is prone to complain 
about your circumstances? Are, are you prone to, uh, do you find yourself you know, letting four-letter words slip out here and there when, when you're having a hard day? You're facing a lot of stress, a lot of challenges. Maybe you, you wear a, a face of, of grumbling and complaining rather than thanksgiving and joy. The, you know, the, on the old-style thermometers, when that red liquid, whenever that raises up, that tells us something, doesn't it? It tells us about the temperature of the air around us. It rises to a certain level, and we can say, oh, it's, it's 80 degrees. But our words, they're like the thermometer of our hearts. They tell us something about the weather condition of your soul. They give us away sooner or later. As one wise old pastor put it, he said, people who use a lot of four-letter words are generally angry. They are not content. They're not happy in Jesus. Something is, is out of whack in their hearts. And so, I mean, I, I, would, I would take issue with, with Christians using four-letter words regardless, but, I would, but it's not just that you use that word. Let's also think about where's that coming from? That's, that's telling you something about the condition of your heart. Maybe you, maybe you don't say the D word or the S word or whatever, but maybe you throw in some other substitute. But still, what's the attitude with which you're speaking? Is it one of contentment, of trust, that the Lord is good, that he's been far better to me than I deserve today? Or is it grumbling, complaining? You know, things are not going my way. I don't deserve this. I I deserve better. This is, I should not be being treated this way. Friends, God does not owe us. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 commands us to give thanks in all circumstances, not just the good times. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Lord, help us. God, God can reprogram us by the supernatural power of his Holy Spirit within us, he can work this in you. Believer, don't, don't make peace with your sin. Don't, don't believe the lies of the world that, you know, I, this is just my personality. I can't, I'm just, I'm just prone to complain. Well, maybe you are, but guess what? You've got the power of God within you, and he's powerful than your personality, more powerful than your personality, and more powerful than your propensity to grumbling. He can strengthen us to grow strong in our faith so that we can trustingly thank him for his goodness and kindness even when we're losing the battle with cancer. Even when we don't get the promotion that we've been working so hard to get. Even when we don't pass the test. Even when the, the ongoing strain of a family member you know, who knows just how to get under your skin he can give us strength to rejoice and give thanks even there. If we think that God owes us something, then we'll feel that there's been an injustice done when we don't get it. And this, this produces grumbling and complaining like hot, humid summer days produce thunderclouds. We must not allow this, this prideful sense of entitlement to grow up within us as if God owes us in proportion to others. So that we become envious when he's generous to them. So that when your life seems to be going worse than those around you, 
you perhaps sink into self-pity. And you, you have an ongoing conversation within your soul about how, how much you've been wronged and how others, I can't believe they don't even notice what I'm going through. They don't feel sorry for me. I am one to be pitied. I have been done such wrong. The universe, I'm a victim of cruel fate. Friends, I speak from experience. I know what that's like. But if we have Jesus, if you've been delivered from the domain of darkness and saved from the wrath to come, if you've been qualified to be an heir of the inheritance of the saints in light in the paradise of God, if you've been given the Holy Spirit of God as a guarantee of your inheritance, if Christ's very blood has been poured out generously for your pardon, in light of all of that, is there really any room to be feeling sorry for yourself? Is this not because we're so weak in our faith that we can't see beyond our circumstance? We, we forget the love of God. Lord, help us. This is, why, this is why we need to read our Bibles. This is why we need to read our Bibles because they, they give us a view beyond our immediate life circumstances. They remind us, these scriptures remind us of what God has done for us in the past, what he's doing for us today, what he's going to do for us in the future. They fuel our faith so that we can rejoice in the power of the Holy Spirit even when things aren't going our way. Remember Paul, he wrote from prison facing possible death. He, he said, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It wasn't that Paul was so strong, like super Paul there in the dungeon, but it's, it's through him who strengthens me. And believer, you have the same God to strengthen you. You have the same God that strengthened Paul for contentment and joy as he was shivering in the cold with an empty stomach on the dungeon floor, sleeplessly awaiting who knows what in the morning, maybe his execution. Friends, we must and we can, by the power of God, be thankful in whatever circumstance God leads us. God is a debtor to no one. God is a debtor to no one. And because of that, we should also rejoice in his generosity to others. Far from begrudging his generosity, far from being envious and, and taking offense and grumbling when we don't get what they got, we ought to celebrate it. We ought to admire God for his graciousness. And so let me just speak to the, the kids in the room for a moment. Uh, I, I, know, I know how it is. How come our friends get to do that? How, why can't we do that in our family? How come they get to go there and we don't? In those moments, listen, Jesus wants you. He wants you to rejoice in his kindness, in his generosity, even when, even when you're not the one that's getting it. God is good enough, he's, he's great enough, that he's to be admired even when we aren't the ones on the receiving end of his kindness. His, his goodness is enough for us to appreciate. 
And so I would just encourage you, kids and adults in the room, pray for strength to love God for who he is, not just for what he gives you. And be thankful for who he is, even when you're not the one that's getting the good gift in that moment. God is worthy of worship and praise for each act of his kindness, even the ones that aren't directed towards us. So Romans 12, 15, it calls us, rejoice with those who rejoice. Rather than being envious of them when they receive a special blessing from the Father, we should rejoice with them, enter into their joy. This is what he calls us to by the power of the Holy Spirit. And friends, just just in closing, I want to encourage you that we're all going to fall short in this. We're going to find ourselves, maybe even this afternoon, maybe we'll find the complaints slipping out of our mouths. And when that happens, I just want to encourage you. Praise the Lord that he's slow to anger and that he's patient. Ask him to forgive you. Ask him to help you. Appreciate his generosity and his kindness. And remember what he's already done for you. And and remember that he doesn't owe you to begin with. God doesn't owe us in proportion to how much we've served him in comparison to others. He's not our debtor. He's given us better than we deserve. And we haven't even begun to realize how good that is. Friends, the best is yet to come. (laughs) Nobody in heaven is going to be complaining and saying, man, I I left behind the the world for, for this? God knows how to give good gifts to his children. And he, it is his good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Fear not. Trust him. There will be no tears in heaven. There will be no grumbling there. This parable was given to instruct us while on earth, still dealing with indwelling sin in this, in this body of death. But when we finally reach glory, when we're freed from every trace of sin and its, effect, its effects upon us, we will be filled with complete joy, pure joy, no tears, no sorrow, no pain anymore. And even if someone has a little more than us, we'll we'll enter into their joy fully. That won't bother us there. And I, I bet you they'll begin to share what they have with us as well. There will be no tears in heaven, no grumbling, no complaining, only fullness of joy for everyone who has left behind this world and followed Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, strengthen us, Lord, to believe your promises, to to recognize your kindness to us, that we, you don't deserve, you don't owe us anything, Father, and help us to, help us to appreciate what you do promise to give us, that you do promise to reward us richly for our service, Lord, for the service that you empower us to do. And Lord, help us to also rejoice when others receive blessings, to rejoice with those who rejoice. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.